The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Now, to begin with um, the first uh, first item on the docket for this afternoon, I want to say a little bit further about Christ in the Psalms. We looked at it yesterday, uh, seeing Christ as the one who sings in the Psalms. He is the singing Savior. Uh, He is the royal Messiah, the the, uh, seed of David, who is the sweet singer of Israel. And he is also the Lord to whom we sing our praises. And so Christ appears in the Psalms uh, both as the Lord and as the servant. In the outline that I distributed yesterday, Christ in the Psalms, Uh, You'll notice the first major division, the covenant theology of the Psalter, points to Christ. And I just want to make a few more observations about preaching Christ, presenting Christ from the Psalms. First, then, that the covenant theology of the Psalter points to Christ. The praise that we give is a memorial to the great works of God and to the names of God. You remember yesterday I referred to that Deuteronomy 31, 19 to 22 passage. Uh, The uh, memorial of the Psalter is God's witness to us, even though it is uttered by his inspired servants. And the Psalms present covenant service in worship. Uh, Exodus 7.16 was the command that God gave to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. And the verb that's used there is the verb avad. And avad is the regular technical term for covenantal service. You see, the people in Egypt were servants of the Pharaoh. And now that God commands that they be let go, that they may serve not the Pharaoh any longer, but serve the Lord. Now, of course, that service of the Lord was preeminently the worship that was to take place at Mount Sinai. The people were to be released in in order uh, to perform the cultus of worship uh, at the mount that God had chosen, Mount Sinai. And, of course, ultimately, they were to be brought from Sinai to Zion in order that they might there worship him. It is, therefore, no accident that the Psalms have such a prominent place in the Old Testament and such a prominent place in the the church, uh, because the Psalms express the worship of the people of God uh, who have been brought into covenantal relation with him and who are celebrating the privileges uh, of that relationship by which they are made to be the people of God and God is made to be their God. So the Psalms contain a response to the covenant mercy of the Lord. And when you read the Psalms, you see there's always a continuing awareness of that. The Psalms have their place in the covenantal history. 
uh, in the Psalms, you find that the covenant promises are continually being uh, claimed. Uh, one of the remarkable things is the way in which God's chesed, uh, God's uh, loving kindness was the King James translation. Uh, the way in which God's loving kindness is continually both celebrated and sought. Uh, the psalmist cries out for the chesed of the Lord. Uh, that's a very remarkable uh, term. Uh, chesed, in a sense, can mean a loyalty. It can be used to describe tribal loyalty, <clears throat> the kind of thing that... Uh, in your experience, is probably uh, most closely associated with uh, baseball and football teams, and maybe after that uh, uh, to a denomination. I don't know, uh, but uh, uh, you you, uh, you know you you do have your loyalties, and when you move from one part of the country to the other, it's very very disturbing to find that you're supposed to have a different loyalty. Uh, after all these years in Philadelphia, I went down to uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, and to my dismay and chagrin, I find that everybody's cheering, of all things, for the Washington Redskins, and this is uh, very hard to take. Uh, but uh, uh, we, we all have some idea of sports loyalty, you know, and it's not enough to be mildly favorable toward the Phillies. Uh, you're supposed to be a Phillies fanatic, you see. It's supposed to be all-out devotion. Well, uh, that, you, you may remember that because uh, that will help you, I think, to understand what chesed means. <laughs> it means loyalty carried to the pitch of devotion. <laughs> and it's what we ought to be rendering to God, of course. But the amazing thing is that in uh, the Old Testament, it's used primarily to describe how God regards us. Uh, the, the living God looks upon us uh, with chesed. That is to say, uh, God has bound himself to us uh, by the ties of his own covenantal grace. And we are therefore united to the Lord uh, by the bands of his mercy. And we therefore uh, seek from the Lord uh, the mercy that he has bound himself to give to us uh, from the glory of his free grace. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will uh, show loving kindness to whom I will show loving kindness. Uh, the, uh, the, in the 51st Psalm, for example, after David's sin with Bathsheba, uh, he, his cry is, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your chesed. See? Uh, according to your uh, uh, pledged, uh, uh, well, grace. According to that grace that you have pledged uh, by the wonder of your commitment to me, uh, I, I seek your forgiveness. Uh, it's, uh, it's a marvelous term. And all through the Psalms, you see this term being uh, reflected. So the petitions of the Psalms seek God's chesed, and the vow of the Psalms uh, reflects the covenant. Uh, God's chesed is declared with thanksgiving. Uh, the psalmist rejoices in the reality of this grace that God gives to his people. And the confession of trust in the Psalms is also a claiming of the covenant promise. You know, I pointed out yesterday that in Psalm 22, you have that confession of trust twice in the early part of the psalm. 
Now, you will uh, immediately recognize that there are whole psalms that are nothing but confessions of trust. Uh, psalm 23 is a psalm of trust, isn't it? And uh, there are psalms which uh, uh, don't have trust just as one element in them, but the whole psalm is a psalm of trust. And therefore, it is the covenant promise of God that is being repeatedly claim, claimed. And then in the Psalms, uh, you have covenant realization. And uh, yesterday I mentioned the difference between declarative and descriptive praise. Uh, the uh, declarative praise, praising God for what he's done, his mighty works, and the descriptive praise, praising God for who he is, his holy name. And uh, this is always in the context of how God has revealed himself to his people. Uh, his works of creation, of providence, but especially his covenantal salvation and the oath that he swore to David. Uh, these are things that are continually celebrated in the Psalms. And then uh, the descriptive praise is really a way of realizing covenantal fellowship. If you think about it, uh, if you've heard, uh, there's a, uh, my son David's teaching a course on the attributes of God in this same uh, semester. And in any uh, book that you read about the attributes of God, uh, you will find repeatedly that the Psalms are being widely used in the scriptural references because the Psalms are really filled with reflection on the attributes of God. Uh, on his majesty, on his wisdom, on his glory, on his mercy, on his justice. <laughs> now, these things you see uh, fill the Psalms. And don't you see there's a reason for that? The reason is that the Psalms, claiming the covenant uh, mercies, claiming the God who has revealed himself, uh, rejoice in what God is like. Uh, because this is the bond of the knowledge of the Lord that God himself has created through his revelation. And that the Lord, who is being revealed in the Psalms and with whom we have fellowship, is, of course, uh, not only God the Father, but God the Son. He's uh, uh, the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ, as I want to go on to show you in just a moment. Uh, there are also those uh, Psalms which center the praise of God in terms of the throne and the city. Uh, that uh, uh, you walk about Jerusalem and count the uh, towers and the battlements thereof, uh, rejoicing in the city of God, the city where God has set his name. And then uh, the thought of the Son of God, the Messiah, in whom the praises of the people of God can be centered. And there you see I've given you Psalm 2, Psalm 72, Psalm 45, and Psalm 110 as examples of that. And then uh, in the third place, covenant fulfillment, realization, and renewal. Christ is the one who is the Lord of the covenant. He is the one who is the kurios of uh, the uh, Psalms in the Septuagint. So that the declarative praise that we give to God as creator is praise that in the New Testament is ascribed to Jesus Christ. You see, uh, Psalm 102, 25 and following, uh, Hebrews 1, 10 to 12. And I call that to your attention. That the very praises of God the Creator that you have in the Psalms uh, are unhesitatingly applied to Jesus Christ by the author of Hebrews. 
and then uh, uh, the praise of God as the Redeemer, uh, praising God as our shepherd, uh, Jesus himself uh, uh, steps into that role in the 10th chapter of John. He is the shepherd of the sheep. Uh, Psalm 68 is reflected and alluded to in Ephesians 4. Uh, the descriptive praise of the psalm of the Psalms is also applied to Christ. Uh, in praise to the Father, we lift up the name of Jesus, uh, the name which is above every name. Psalm uh, 2, verse 9, Ephesians 5, 20. Uh, we make melody in our hearts to the Lord, Ephesians 5.19. In other words, as in the Old Testament, the Psalms make melody uh, to uh, the Lord, Yahweh. Uh, so in the New Testament, we make melody in our hearts to the Lord, to the Kyrios, uh, to uh, Jesus Christ, who is uh, the Lord. And you remember that striking passage in 1 Peter that I alluded to yesterday where Peter tells us to sanctify in our hearts the Lord, referring back to Isaiah 8, and then adds uh, Christos, sanctified, well, uh, uh, the Christon, uh, sanctify in your hearts him who is the Lord. Sanctify Jesus Christ as Lord in your hearts. And we make melody in our hearts to the Lord. Uh, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and we sing our praises to him. So Christ is the Lord of the covenant and is therefore praised as such. Christ is the servant of the covenant, and he also therefore fulfills uh, that role from the Psalms. He's the royal servant. He's the king. The Psalms celebrate the glory of the Lord's anointed. Uh, Psalm 45, 6 and 7 is referred to in Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. The divine sonship of Psalm 2-7 is uh, alluded to in Hebrews 1-5, uh, and also uh, Psalm 110 uh, is referred to there. And in Matthew 22, 41-45, you have one of many allusions to Psalm 110 in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus himself uh, uh, steps into that uh, application of Psalm 110, uh, the stone which the builders rejected has become the headstone of the corner, Jesus says, from Psalm 118. That's applied to him. Uh, but uh, uh, Jesus, remember, confuted his enemies by saying, how can David's uh, son be David's Lord? How is it that David can say, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand, and I will make the, thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. Uh, everybody agreed that that was David speaking. Everybody agreed that he's speaking about the Messiah. But the problem that Jesus put is, how could David speak about his son, the Messiah being his son, how could he speak about his son as being his Lord? And of course, they didn't have any answer for that. And the answer, obviously, is because of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the very Lord of David. So he's the, the royal servant, the divine son, uh, the royal procession from the Psalms. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Psalm 118, uh, uh, 26. Uh, we find that uh, appearing in the triumphal procession as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. The image of the cornerstone and the foundation stone is applied to Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 2.6. Uh, the ascension uh, described in Psalm 68.18, he's ascended on high. 
leading captivity captive, uh, is quoted in Ephesians 4.8. You see, what, now what I'm doing here is nothing new. You know about these uh, connections back and forth uh, between the Old Testament and the New. But what I'm calling to your attention is how comprehensive it is. <laughs> See, you can just go down through the whole structure of the Psalter and you see how in the New Testament each element of it is uh, directly applied to Jesus Christ. So he's the uh, Lord of the covenant and he's the servant of the covenant and uh, he's not only the royal servant, uh, the servant who's the king, but he's the suffering servant. And the figure of the righteous sufferer of the Psalms is, of course, presented, uh, applied to Jesus Christ. Now, we saw that yesterday, the cry of abandonment in Psalm 22, verse 1, but also his cry to the heights of uh, 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 appeal to God. And he appears then as the representative sufferer. Psalm 69, 9, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and uh, the disciples uh, witnessing Jesus' cleansing of the temple remember that uh, passage from the Psalms. But you see, uh, that's tremendously important. Uh, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. The reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen on me. Uh, you see, that's the cry of the righteous servant of the Lord. He's suffering not for his own sins. He's suffering because he is identified with the Lord. It's uh, the, the reproach of God that's given to him. And Jesus Christ is the one in whom that is fulfilled. And so I've given you uh, these other passages as well to show Christ as the representative sufferer. Of course, uh, especially Isaiah 53, uh, where you see the suffering servant of the Lord described in terms that are uh, directly descriptive of the work of Jesus Christ. And we find refuge in him. Uh, the Psalms of Refuge uh, find their fulfillment in uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus says, He that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. He invites us and calls us to come to him. Uh, he's not only the righteous sufferer, he's the second Adam. Uh, he's described in Psalm 8, <clears throat> Uh, what is man that thou art mindful of him, uh, the son of man that thou visitest, visitest him? <clears throat> and that psalm which celebrates uh, the glory given to man uh, in the epistle to the Hebrews is uh, unhesitatingly applied to Jesus Christ. Uh, Hebrews, the second chapter, that psalm is quoted, Psalm 8. And we read, Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou, did, thou didst put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he subjected all things unto him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we see not yet all things subjected to him, but we behold him who hath been made a little lower than the angels, even Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he should taste of death for every man. Now you see, in that passage, uh, Jesus is seen as the second Adam. He's seen as the son of man in that sense, uh, Ben Adam. Uh, he is uh, the one who is uh, the heir of all the promises uh, that God has uh, for uh, his creation now made to be a new creation. He is the victorious mediator. He's the triumphant servant who sings the song of victory. 
uh, it, he sings in the midst of the congregation, as we saw yesterday, and sings among the Gentiles. He sings in heaven as the ascending Lord uh, who has overcome the rebels and uh, made the victory sure. And our fellowship, therefore, is fellowship with the singing Savior as we sing with him in the witness of praise and as we worship with him. For he comes to us in worship uh, where two or three are gathered together, he's present, and we come to him in worship. For Hebrews 12 tells us that we come to the heavenly Zion where Jesus Christ is. Now, what you see in the Psalms here, when you look at the covenantal theology of the Psalms, uh, you see that uh, that covenant is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, both as the Lord of the covenant and as the servant. For you see, the covenant always has the two uh, parties, the Lord and the servant. And uh, Jesus Christ comes as the Lord to claim his people. And Jesus Christ identifies with us as the servant. And he is the true servant in whom we are united to God. So the covenant is actualized and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we are incorporated into that covenant because we are incorporated into him. Uh, We are made one with Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Now, in the second part of that paper that I uh, distributed, uh, you see how the categories of the Psalms uh, witness to Jesus Christ. There have been many efforts to group the Psalms uh, since the time of Gunkel uh, with the different forms of genre research. Uh, Mo Winkle's uh, efforts at uh, classifying the Psalms Uh, the uh, Psalms in Israel's Worship, uh, Oxford, 1962. And there's uh, a book on the Psalms by Pius Drivers, uh, D-R-I-J-V-E-R-S, where he has a classification that I've given you there. Uh, Dr. E.J. Young was uh, uh, quite impressed by uh, Drivers' work in uh, classifying the Psalms. And you notice you have Psalms of Praise, 17 of them, four Psalms of Trust, 17 individual psalms of thanksgiving, 42 individual psalms of petition. Now, you see, they're the ones that uh, I was calling the lament of the individual, individual psalms of petition. Uh, Communal psalms of thanksgiving, 8. Communal psalms of petition, 16. Uh, Psalms where the righteous pleads is over against the sinner, 17. He doesn't list the refuge psalms, but he puts in that classification some of the psalms that I think might better be called psalms of refuge. Uh, Fourteen pilgrim psalms, uh, ten processional psalms, psalms that were called, I think mistakenly, enthronement psalms, and then uh, eight uh, royal psalms. Uh, All these uh, forms of psalms that we have. Now just look, and I'm not going to take the time to go through this in detail, I'm just uh, providing you with some information that I'm more or less describing here. Uh, But look, uh, first, the laments. The laments of the individual. Uh, Psalm 22, and we saw yesterday the fulfillment in Hebrews 2.12 applied to Christ. Uh, Psalms of lament on the part of the people of God. And there I've given a number of them. And the point is, they are picked up uh, in the songs 
uh, in the first part of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, those psalms uh, by Zacharias, uh, the Magnificate of Mary, the, uh, uh, the uh, blessing uh, in the temple uh, of uh, Simeon. Uh, you see, in, in all these psalms, um, Dr. Uh, uh, Machen had uh, a beautiful article on the, the, the psalms, uh, the early hymns in the Gospel of Luke. But you see, they draw from uh, these uh, psalms, which are the lament of the people, uh, crying out for deliverance. And now the deliverance has come through Jesus Christ. Uh, psalms of trust in trouble, like 91, 11, and 12, uh, um, and Matthew 4, 5, and 7, <clears throat> where that's referred to. Then psalms of praise. Uh, blessing the Lord for his deeds and praising the Lord for his attributes. Uh, I don't want to push that, but remember I talked about the declarative and descriptive uh, praise, and to some extent uh, the declarative praise, thanking God for what he's done, is associated with the verb barak, to bless. Whereas the descriptive praise, praising God for who he is, is associated with uh, hallelujah. Uh, it's a beautiful inner relationship there. Now, what I'm seeking to point out is that the individual psalms of declarative praise are ascribed to Jesus Christ. Psalm 18, 49 and following, picked up in Romans 15, 9. Psalm 40, 6 to 9, picked up in Hebrews 10, 5 to 9. Uh, Lo, in the volume of the book it is written in me, I am come to do thy will, O my God. Um, and then uh, the declarative praise, think of Jesus himself singing the great Hallel with uh, the disciples in the upper room. Uh, the Song of Moses, the, the praise of God, uh, Psalm 114, uh, is uh, really picked up uh, in the book of Revelation, the Song of the Lamb, Revelation 15.3. Descriptive praise, I've already referred to Psalm 8, picked up in Hebrews 2, 6 to 9. Uh, Psalm 102 in Hebrews 1, uh, the history of Israel and of uh, the people of God ascending on high, uh, picked up in Ephesians 4, 8 to 10. The, the royal psalms, uh, God's accession on his holy hill of Zion in Psalm 24, uh, in its reference to Christ's ascension as the Lord of glory. Well, I'm not just, uh, I, I, it's no use in just reading references if I don't take time to talk about the individual passages, so you can just look at them. But you see, the procession into the holy hill, the coming of the Lord to judge, his marching before his saints, Christ as the archegos, the one who goes before, the, uh, the founder of our faith, um, picks up on that theme. Uh, the wisdom psalms, which are uh, referred to many times in the New Testament, and we'll see more about that in a moment and especially as Christ is seen to be uh, the very wisdom of God uh, for us. And the refuge psalms, uh, which, uh, uh, of course, uh, prepare us for understanding what Jesus says about the church as the refuge from the gates of hell, as he establishes that church, and Jesus, as he calls us to come unto him. 
uh, we who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give us rest. He will be our refuge. He will be our peace. Uh, he will be the one in whom we find uh, that uh, solace and restoration uh, described in the Psalms. Well, uh, I just uh, wanted to show you that when you look through the categories of the Psalms, uh, you find the New Testament freely applying uh, from all of those categories in reference to Jesus Christ. In other words, the New Testament sees the entire Psalter as a Christocentric book because it's a covenantal book. The Psalter's about the Lord and his servant, and Jesus Christ comes as the Lord and the servant. So you see, you don't find Christ in the Psalms just accidentally, where here or there there's something uh, mentioned that strikes a note. Uh, you find Christ in the Psalms principially, out of the very structure of what the Psalms are all about, because the Psalms are praising God for his covenanted mercies. And those covenanted mercies are given to us in Jesus Christ in their fullness. And so the Psalms are continually preparing us for him. Now, uh, one difficulty that uh, emerges when it comes to preparing uh, Bible studies or sermons uh, based on the Psalms, uh, one of the difficulties that emerges is this. Uh, are you going to be presenting Christ as the Lord, uh, as the Psalm uh, shows him, or are you going to present Christ as the servant? Because, you see, in principle, uh, you always have both options. Uh, you come to Psalm 23, and uh, you very naturally think of Christ as the Lord there. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And in John 10, Jesus presents himself as the great shepherd of the sheep. And uh, uh, in First uh, Peter, uh, we're told the same thing, that uh, Christ, in the second chapter, that Christ is the shepherd. So we know that Jesus is the shepherd, and therefore it's very easy, reading the 23rd Psalm, uh, to think of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment, as the shepherd. But you see, you mustn't forget that Psalm 23 is the Psalm of David. It's the Psalm of David's trust in the Lord. Jesus Christ comes as David's son. And so Jesus Christ, in his human nature as the Messiah, also owns that psalm. Uh, Jesus, of course, uh, repeated that psalm. Jesus knew that psalm. And uh, you can put that psalm on the lips of Jesus. <laughs> You see, Jesus says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, Jesus says that uh, in the valley of the shadow of death, you see, thou art with me. Uh, uh, Jesus says, thou anointest my head with oil in the presence of mine enemies. And, and uh, just so we wouldn't miss that, uh, God arranged it in Bethany. <laughs> Remember, just before he went to the cross, uh, he was uh, anointed uh, by uh, Mary, uh, her devotion. Uh, a table was spread before him. They had a supper for him in Bethany as he faced his enemies going to the cross. Uh, uh, the, 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 the cup uh, that is filled and running over of the mercy of God is given to Jesus Christ, our Savior. The banqueting table of God's goodness is the banqueting 
wedding table of the marriage feast of the Lamb. Uh, he owns it all, you see. Uh, now, uh, all right, you say, now I'm getting confused. How do, you, how do you preach on Psalm 23? Do I preach Christ as Lord, or do we preach Christ as servant, or uh, in all my uh, messages from the Psalms, do I have two divisions? Division one, Christ as Lord. Division two, Christ as servant. Uh, well, uh, you see, uh, there I have to uh, <clears throat> recommend something that's pretty obvious. Uh, what you're concerned about, of course, is the, is the main thrust of the passage itself. And to the degree that there's a, a clear New Testament emphasis in the use of the passage, you're naturally guided by that. So with Psalm 23, uh, you're thinking especially of Christ as the shepherd, as the Lord, as fulfilling that part of the psalm, and of ourselves as being his sheep. And so that's a very natural application of that psalm. But I, I say the other to alert you to the fact that in principle, uh, Christ is always both sides of the covenant. He's always the Lord of the covenant. He's always the servant of the covenant. And therefore, uh, we realize how both sides apply to him. Now, of course, you do find in the Psalms confessions of sin that don't apply to Jesus Christ directly. Uh, Jesus uh, Christ uh, is not the... Uh, owner in that sense of Psalm 51, he never sinned as David did, uh, causing David to utter the words of that psalm. But remember, on the other hand, that although Jesus Christ never committed any sin, uh, don't forget that he bore all the judgment of our sin, and that he's identified with us in bearing that judgment. And so, uh, when the psalmist cries out how his uh, bones were parched uh, uh, and your hand was heavy on me and, and that sort of thing, uh, that, of course, uh, is also Christ's experience as on the cross uh, uh, he bears our sin. Uh, okay, now, let me stop for just a moment uh, and try to uh, have some discussion and questions about what I've just been saying. Uh, very, very good, very good question. Um, do we correlate lordship with deity and servanthood with humanity? Um, now, you know, uh, it's interesting, you know, in the Shorter Catechism, uh, we're told about the, the two states of Jesus, his state of humiliation and his state of exaltation. Uh, so he's humbled and then he's exalted. So you get a lot of correlates that you can run across one another. Uh, the interesting thing is that the correlation is not uh, direct and uh, uh, exclusive. Uh, because uh, who is it that humbles himself and takes upon him the form of a servant and is made in the likeness of man? You see, it's the Son of God. And... Uh, you know, I was always impressed uh, um, a conversation I had with John Murray one time, and um, he was stressing something that I think is very important to realize. Uh, he says in John 3.16, where we read that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that giving uh, included not only uh, giving him on the cross, it included also giving him in the incarnation. See, because God sent his son into the world. 
So he gave him, in a sense, when he sent him into the world. And therefore, the one who is given is the eternal son. See, uh, which, of course, of course, pushes you back to some very fundamental Christology, <laughs> that there's one divine person in the two human natures. You don't have two persons in Christ. You have one person, and that person is divine. And the divine person, uh, as a result of the incarnation, uh, has two natures, the human nature and the divine nature. Now, admittedly, there's a tremendous mystery here that we speak of as best we can. But uh, obviously, it is the divine person who humbles himself. And indeed, uh, the merit of Christ's death, the infinite value of the sacrifice of Christ, uh, rests upon the reality of his deity. Uh, if it were just one man who died, uh, he would not be making a, a sacrifice adequate uh, for uh, the sins of all. And so Jesus Christ uh, makes a sacrifice that is sufficient because he is uh, divine, because he's God the Son. and uh, The value of his sacrifice is infinite. So uh, you, you can't quite say that he's Lord as God, but not also serving, because uh, of Philippians 2. Uh, he humbles himself and takes upon himself the form of a servant. So the one who... John tells us that, doesn't he? When he, he talks about Jesus wiping the disciples' feet, he says that Jesus, knowing who he was and why he'd come... <laughs> In other words, uh, John's telling us that Jesus, knowing he is the Logos, he takes a towel and, and girds himself and washes the disciples' feet. Uh, so, so there's the, the marvel and the wonder of all of that. Um, tremendous. Uh, but see, on the other hand, uh, you can't make it exclusive either, uh, because in his human nature, uh, he is uh, abased and he becomes the servant as, uh, as a human uh, being. Uh, but in his uh, human nature, he's also exalted. <laughs> and therefore, the name that's above every name is the name of Jesus. Uh, so that the one that we worship is uh, the man, Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, not, uh, not an abstract Christ event. Uh, but the real Jesus. So it is he who is made Lord, Lord of all. So uh, while it's true that uh, we cannot help but correlate lordship with deity and servanthood with humanity, uh, that's a proper enough correlation, but I'm reminding you it cannot be an exclusive correlation. Okay? Uh, I'll try to give a little shorter answer to things and encourage more questions. Uh, you, uh, the older you get, the harder it is to shut up, you know. Uh, go ahead. Now. Yes, uh, the, uh, uh, the implicatory psalms, uh, how do we understand them in relation to the Christocentric uh, structure of the Psalter? Uh, actually, without the Christocentric structure, uh, it's very, very difficult to interpret the implicatory psalms. <laughs> It's the Christocentric structure that help us to understand them, uh, to, to, to uh, perceive why uh, we have them and why they are important. Uh, for you see, um, in the Psalms, the reason we have imprecatory Psalms is because of the theocratic structure of Israel's warfare. 
You see, Israel was not just fighting as one nation against another, far less were they fighting uh, in an imperial conquest. Israel fought at the word of the Lord, but Israel fought as God's avenging angels, you might say. Uh, God did not call the Israelites into Canaan until the cup of the Amorites was full. So uh, God told God told Abraham that you know before Israel even went down into Egypt uh, that Israel would not be brought back into Canaan until uh, it was the time for the judgment on the Canaanites, and so the Israelites are brought in uh, as uh, the human avengers, uh, the bearers of God's sword of judgment, and uh, uh, Meredith Klein has well pointed out that uh, the judgment that Israel brings uh, becomes a a symbol of the last judgment because it's a symbol of the way in which God will at last punish and condemn all sin and all unrighteousness. So just just as fire fell on Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, God's uh, uh, patience with Sodom and Gomorrah was exhausted and God sent judgment from heaven directly upon them. In a similar way, uh, God's uh, uh, patience with the iniquity of the Canaanites was exhausted and Israel was called in to be the very sword of the Lord against the the Canaanites. And uh, you have the cry of... uh, 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 mid of uh, 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 Gideon, the cry of Gideon, uh, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, you see. Uh, Gideon's sword is the Lord's sword. <laughs> He's fighting a theocratic battle. Uh, the the uh, modern Islamic concept of holy war uh, is really drawn from uh, the Old Testament concept as it uh, uh, as really as Muhammad had been exposed to uh, Old Testament uh, uh, teaching in his contacts with Jewish communities. So it is a, a holy war. I'm not saying that the uh, Islamic war is identical with the Old Testament conception. There are very important differences. Uh, but it, 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 the concept of a holy war is what you have in the Old Testament. Holy war in the sense that it is the descent of the divine judgment upon those that God will no longer tolerate upon earth because of the gravity of their iniquity. Now, uh, against that background, you see, you have David looking upon his enemies as God's enemies, those that are under the judgment of God, those who deserve the wrath of God upon them. Then, as an extension of that, uh, you have the enemy nations brought in to judge Israel. So the Assyrians become, in a certain sense, the sword of the Lord used against Israel, and the Babylonians, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, becomes the sword of the Lord against Judah in the south. And then you have the people crying out that the judgment that God has brought upon them for their iniquity uh, be in turn visited upon the heathen nations for their iniquity. And you see in Isaiah 10, that whole thing's discussed. And in Isaiah 10, uh, God says that uh, these, uh, the Assyrians, you know, uh, they haven't fought as God's loyal servants. They have fought as those who worship uh, raw power, you know. They bow down to their own dragnet. They worship their own armed might. They worship their own military establishment. And the Assyrians were, of course, one of the most uh, uh, cruel and vicious 
vicious of all armies. If you, you look at the, the exhibits in the British Museum in London, uh, uh, you see the uh, the barbaric practices that uh, the Assyrians uh, uh, gloated in, in the way they, uh, you know, conquered a people and uh, stashed everybody on pointed stakes, you know, all over the place and flayed them alive and all this stuff. Uh, the, the dreadful uh, atrocities. Uh, and, and then Israel cries out to the Lord, uh, Lord, may the judgment be visited upon them that they have visited upon others. You see, that's a cry for justice in terms of uh, let it be done unto them as they have done unto others. And it's in that context that you have such a statement as uh, uh, happy is he that uh, dashes their little ones against the wall. You see, this is what they have done to others. Uh, may, it, may it be done unto them. Now, uh, that, that cry for judgment, that cry for justice, uh, is a cry that is uh, uh, ultimately, of course, uh, an appeal uh, for the absolute justice, the true judgment of the holy and righteous God. And that true judgment, that true justice, of course, is grounded in God's righteousness and in the moral law of God that at last uh, no wickedness will go unavenged, that at last everybody gets what's coming to them, and that uh, the, 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 the righteous indignation that you so often see among people when they see what Hitler's doing in the Holocaust or something like that, that uh, people shouldn't get away with things like that. Well, the answer is they don't ultimately, for every man must stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, you see, uh, how then do we understand these uh, psalms which call for the retributive judgment of God, that it may be done unto those as they have done unto others? How do we understand such psalms in terms of the fulfillment in Jesus Christ? Well, of course, you see, Jesus Christ is David's greater son. Jesus Christ is the divine warrior. Jesus Christ is the ultimate judge. The coming of God in judgment is his coming in Jesus Christ. And therefore, uh, the, the imprecatory psalms are psalms which cry out uh, to God to visit his ultimate judgment upon all sin to end all sin and to bring about uh, a, a new order of uh, justice and righteousness. And you see, Jesus Christ comes to do that very thing. Now, of course, you run into a problem, don't you? It was John the Baptist's problem. You have it in the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, John the Baptist uh, uh, is in prison. Uh, he's in Herod's prison. And his prospects don't look too good. And he hears while he's in prison that Jesus Christ is doing wonderful miracles. He hears that he's even raising the dead. The last news John's got has been that Jesus has raised the son of the widow of Nain. So there in prison, John hears of Christ's miracles. Now, John was Jesus' forerunner. And what did he say? He said, the axe is lying at the, fruit, at the root of the tree, ready, ready to cut down every tree of wickedness. And Jesus came to pick up the axe. But John says, why doesn't he pick it up? 
Jesus came. He has the power. But where are the trees of wickedness being chopped down? Why doesn't Jesus start with that very eminent tree of wickedness, Herod? Why doesn't he cut him down in in his evil regime? Uh, Why doesn't Jesus deliver us from the Romans? Uh, Why doesn't he uh, set free the oppressed? Uh, if, uh, if the Old Testament says the Messiah is going to free the oppressor, uh, I mean, to deliver the oppressed, well, then he certainly has to smite the oppressor. So why doesn't he smite the oppressor and deliver the oppressed? You see, John's question is not that Jesus doesn't have the power. John's question is that Jesus isn't doing the job. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus, are you the one that's coming, or ought we to look for another? And then you remember that Jesus has John's disciples stay with him while he proceeds to do a lot more miracles. And then Jesus summarizes the miracles that he's been doing, uh, causing the blind to see and the lame to walk and the deaf to hear and so on. And he summarizes all of that from Isaiah 35. And then he sends the disciples of John back to him with this word. Blessed is he whosoever is not offended in me. He says to John, in effect, John, don't stop believing. John, you let me do it my way. Uh, John, I'm not doing what you think I ought to do, but John, believe in me anyway. You see, John thought Jesus had it backwards. Jesus was bringing the blessings of the kingdom without bringing the judgments of the kingdom. And how in the world can you bring the blessing if you don't first bring the judgment? Because the blessing is that which the judgment ushers in. But now you see, why didn't Jesus do it? Why wasn't he cutting down every tree of wickedness? Why didn't he bring in the last judgment when he came? Well, he said, he hasn't come to condemn men, he's come to save them. He came not to bring the judgment, he came to bear the judgment. He came not to thrust with the spear, but to bear the spear thrust. You see, he came for judgment all right, but he came to bear the judgment so that sinners might be forgiven. And if he'd come bringing judgment, he would have destroyed Herod all right, but for that matter, so would he have destroyed Peter, James, and John, and uh, John the Baptist too, For all are sinners, there's none that's righteous, so Jesus' judgment would have been totally comprehensive to destroy the whole planet. And the angels wouldn't have uh, sung peace on earth to men of God's good pleasure. They would have come as avenging angels in the 12 legions that followed the, the, the Son of God. But Jesus didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bear it, and therefore there's a great mystery that the judgment is postponed, the long-suffering of God waits. Now, in that situation, when the long-suffering of God waits, in that situation, when Jesus comes not to smite those that are inflicting suffering, but when he comes to bear the suffering, then he calls his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. 
And he teaches them that as he came first to suffer, then to enter into his glory, so too the disciples first suffer and then enter into their glory, his glory. The judgment is postponed. Okay, where does that put us with the, uh, the, the imprecatory songs? Well, obviously, in the first place, it shows us that we do not sing those psalms against our personal enemies. <laughs> because Jesus tells us to bless and curse not. And those psalms call down curses on the wicked who deserve those curses. So, negatively, we can't adopt the imprecatory psalms as our own. Now, that's been done in history. The uh, uh, Cromwell's troops sang the imprecatory psalms against the Scotch, and the Scotch sang the imprecatory psalms back against Cromwell's troops. So they went into battle singing the divine imprecations against one another. And you see, they were both wrong. <laughs> Uh, they, they, they both were misunderstanding the, the force of this. But then is there a positive force to the imprecatory psalms? Yes, there is. Of course there is. They are, first of all, the psalms that call for God's judgment against the power of darkness, against Satan and against his hosts. And by implication, they call down God's judgment against all of those who ultimately identify themselves with God. Satan against God and, and for the kingdom of darkness. But nevertheless, we cannot ourselves identify such people because Jesus says, love your enemies, bless them that persecute you. And so you see, now we are not in the stage of the last judgment. Now there will be the last judgment. And in the last judgment, we will be called to join in the judgment of the earth. Uh, Paul says, don't you know, you're even going to judge angels in the last day. Now, we, we naturally shrink from such a concept now, and well, we might, because we know how un unqualified we are for such judgment. But you see, even the Apostle Paul says, we ought to be so identifying ourselves with righteousness that we will be uh, preparing ourselves, as it were, for that great day when we're going to join Christ in judgment. But you see, we don't now join Christ in judgment. We now love our enemies. We now show mercy to those that hate us. And the way in which we put coals of fire on their head is not by uh, the literal coals of torture, uh, but by uh, doing so much good that they get ashamed of the way they've been treating us. And if you want a wonderful book on how to go about all this and how to live that way, uh, the best book written on it is uh, by the uh, Apostle Peter. It's the first epistle of Peter. You read that book carefully and you, you see how he uh, tells you to do it. And uh, uh, it's a tremendous book because you see what he, the amazing thing he says is, uh, friends, you've got it made. You have an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that passes not away. God keeps the inheritance for you. He keeps you for the inheritance. Uh, you are a holy people, a people of God's own possession. Uh, you are a royal nation, a, a kingdom of priests. Uh, you see, he's saying that you've got it all. And because you've got it all, uh, therefore, what? Well, because you've got it all. Therefore, you're free. 
And being free, you can pick up that towel and gird yourself and go around washing people's feet. See? You can honor all men. You can be in subjection to one another. And you're not being uh, slavish. You're not being servile because you know who you are. You know, who's the guy who's always uh, uh, such a loud mouth and bragging so much and saying what a big deal he is? Uh, who's the guy that's like that? Well, you know, he's the guy who's so insecure. <laughs> he's, uh, he's, he's always got to prove that he's somebody because he knows very well he's not. And so he's going to prove uh, himself uh, with his, uh, his boasting. <laughs> but the, the fellow who really has it, the fellow who has nothing to worry about, the fellow who's uh, secure in his own position, he doesn't have to put on a big show. Uh, he can serve. Well, in a, in a, in a vague way, <laughs> that helps us to understand a bit what Peter's getting at. Because he spends a lot of time telling us how great our inheritance is. But the reason he wants us to be assured of that is so that we can freely and confidently humble ourselves. For he says, you know, he that humbles himself will be exalted, and he that exalts himself will be abased. So we humble ourselves because we're following in the steps of Jesus Christ. Well, a lot to think about there. The, the imprecatory psalms are very important to remind us of the solemnity of the judgment of God, to remind us that we must hate the works of the devil, to remind us that God's judgment will at last be poured out against all unrighteousness. Those psalms are a solemn reminder. And yet, uh, to us, they speak of the last judgment of God's final work of deliverance and uh, they do not represent the attitudes that we now have toward our enemies, uh, nor even uh, the attitudes toward those uh, who may be, through their ignorance, error, and rebellion, uh, opposing the work of God in the world today. Well, uh, yeah, you wanted to ask one? Well, Christ, you know, is our king, so he is all his and our enemies. Um, could that be seen this attitude? Yes, yes, I'm glad you said that because that adds an important point. Yeah, that's right. Uh, remember how Jesus takes the, the cords and drives them out of the temple, you know. Remember his condemnation of the hypocrites. And remember how he called the people uh, children of the devil, you know. Liars as the, the devil is a liar. See, Jesus, who can read the hearts, could speak of men sometimes as uh, what they really are, the ultimate enemies of God. Of course, even there, even there, there's... Uh, it's not totally that. Jesus isn't now pronouncing the last judgment against them. It still has an element of warning in it, see, that if they will heed what he's saying, it isn't too late. There's, there's a very interesting verb that's used in John 11 where Jesus uh, goes to the tomb of Lazarus, you know, and just before it says that Jesus wept, the verb that's used really describes anger. Uh, not sorrow, but anger. And you say, uh, well, what's his anger directed against? Well, surely not against Mary and Martha. He, he sympathizes with their grief. Uh, his anger is directed against death, you see. It's the... Uh, 
Ginsburg in a, in a biography I read a few days ago. A woman brought out the point that, too, that he didn't go directly to the tomb, but that he waited. And the silence, too, the significance of the silence mm-hmm. in those times when we would expect. Yes, right. That's right. Okay, let's take a, a little break now, and then we'll get together again.